The scripture this morning comes from Matthew chapter 17, verses 14 through 27. When they came to the crowd, a man approached Jesus and knelt before him. Lord, have mercy on my son, he said. He has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire or into the water. I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. You unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of the boy, and he was healed at that moment. Then the disciples came to Jesus in private and asked, Why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, Because you have so little faith. Truly I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. When they came together in Galilee, he said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and on the third day he will be raised to life. And the disciples were filled with grief. After Jesus and his disciples arrived in Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma temple tax came to Peter and asked, Doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? Yes, he does, he replied. When Peter came into the house, Jesus was the first to speak. What do you think, Simon? he asked. From whom do the kings of earth collect duty and taxes, from their own children or from others? From others, Peter answered. Then the children are exempt, Jesus said to him. But so that we may not cause offense, go to the lake and throw out your line. Take the first fish you catch, open its mouth, and you will find four drachma coin. Take it and give it to them for my tax and yours. All right. Good morning. Everybody well? I'm assuming you are, you're awake and alert, got lots of sleep, my kids were up at five. (laughs) When you have little kids, that thing where like you guys get more sleep, the rest of us who have little kids get actually an hour less sleep because they don't care, they don't know, they're going to wake up at six no matter what. So if six becomes five, we're up at five. And then somehow when it switches back, we lose another hour, I've never understood it. It doesn't even itself out ever. You lose more and more sleep until you die. Okay, now, (laughs) welcome to Watermark. My name is Tommy. I'm the pastor here. And uh, this is a huge passage, and there is a lot going on. My iPad's doing that thing. I shouldn't have updated. There we go. Okay. Um, There's a huge passage, and there's a lot going on. and I'm covering bigger passages because I want to finish in my lifetime this, this book of the Bible and move on to another one. Um, I have not always been doing Matthews, by the way. I've um, been pastoring here for 11 years. We've done other books. I had someone literally the other day was like, was like, did you know he did Genesis? He hasn't always done Matthew? No. I don't just read Matthew over and over again in my life. Um, so we have uh, a very big passage today, and uh, I'm, I'm glad I'm getting started a little early. Uh, there's a lot going on, and I want to I walk you through it little bit by little bit, piece by piece. Um, a big question when you're reading the Bible that you should always ask is, why was this story included? Um, it is not just, the Gospels are not just everything that they can remember put down. Um, the scrolls had, that they were writing on had a specific length. All four of the Gospels are about the same length, um, if, you, if you were to like sort of write them out on scrolls. Because scrolls were expensive, and at some point, you can't carry <laughs> You can't carry it because it'll get too big. So, the, the, the biggest scrolls were a certain size. All four of, of the, the Gospels 
are about the longest writings in ancient history that we actually have. Um, the longest single writing. They are massive. And so um, they're, they're very choosy about what they're going to include, which gets interesting because you read passages like this, and you're like, why in the world would we need to know this? Um, and that's the question when you read commentaries. That's the question people are asking. Why is this important? Why is it important for us? Why is it important for Matthew's audience to read this? Um, what, was, what was it about this and the first century that was, that was of utter importance in following Jesus that these stories needed to be, needed to be read and kept? So I'm going to try to get at some of that today. I can't answer all of it. I literally have, I wrote 9,000 words of notes, um, and I whittled it down to about 2,000 words. So like, there's so much that could be said. There is repercussions in this text for politics, um, for um, how you engage um, money, um, how you engage systems who you, that you know are unjust, but you are required to give to, all kinds of things. Um, and so we can't go into all that today, um, but in your house churches, maybe you can discuss that. I'll write out some questions and notes, and I'll send them over to Sam today to get to the house church leaders so you guys can sort of discuss this more in length. If you're not in a house church, go to a house church. Let's pray, shall we? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this place and these people. Guide our time together this morning. Let me communicate clearly. Um, let us listen. Let us, let us be present and receive um, these ancient words of these ancient people and let us see them in new ways every time we open them. Uh, there's always something to learn, always something to gleam, always something for every generation um, that is similar to what these ancient people were going through. And help us to see it. Help us to see the wisdom in what they were doing. Somehow they had something that they were willing to die for, that they were willing to travel the world and proclaim that changed the world as they knew it, that gave hope to people who desperately needed it. Whatever that is, grant us some of that this morning. Thank you, Father. Amen. Let's start here. Verse 14 and 15. When they came to the crowd, a man approached Jesus and knelt before him. Lord, have mercy on my son, he said. He has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire or into the water. So, um, Do you remember the last time we studied Matthews? It was like three weeks ago, the the book of Matthew. uh, We we talked about the transfiguration and the juxtaposition, sort of the dichotomy of of the the, the Mount of Transfiguration and the Mount of Calvary and how the glory of Jesus is not actually seen on the Mount of Transfiguration. There's a lot of splendor, a lot of majesty. There's these great visions that happen. But the glory of Jesus is always meant to be seen on, on the Mount of Calvary. It is a humble, suffering, pouring yourself out glory. And this is how the, the Christians are supposed to view Jesus and, and the greatest things in the world. People pouring themselves out for others, not people sitting on high places. So they come down the mountain of transfiguration after having this mystical experience, and right away um, they run into suffering people. Right away. Jesus tells Peter, we can't stay here on this mountain. We are not meant to dwell here with the, with the great prophets and, and um, famous People whom you'd like to know and get to know and spend time with, rubbing shoulders with powerful people. He says, this is not where, where we, God's people, will dwell. We will head down the mountain. And right when they do, the second they hit the bottom of the mountain, there's a crowd. And Jesus apparently walks right to the crowd. And a man carrying um, a son who is suffering is there. Now, I'm going to pause here before we get into that, uh, the, the situation with the boy. Um, it's easy, as a Christian, to feel holy and godly in quiet moments of separation and escape. It is really easy to spend time in silence in your house, on your porch, 
I don't know why I'm coughing. Who knows? Um, it is easy to spend time uh, to, to feel really righteous and holy and godly when you are by yourself, reading books, filling yourself up, praying prayers, reciting, doing meditation, whatever, whatever you're into, whatever you do to sort of fill yourself up. It is really easy to feel godly in those moments. There's moments where you don't feel godly um, and you just kind of like, I need to get away and get some quiet time so I can, um, I just want to feel connected to God. However, that is not how the Christian life is meant to be lived. Um, that is a spiritual discipline of how we are filled up. Um, but that is not religion. Rest is really important. It's fulfilling your soul for quiet. It's, regular, it's important. Um, but that, by and large, is escapism. Um, the will of God, the actual will of God, is that you would be present with other people, bearing their burdens, pouring yourself out for them. That is the will of God for you. The other thing, escapism, sitting on the Mount of Transfiguration, the, 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 um, the mystical experience, the, the singing, the worship, the hands raised, feeling emotional, crying, all that, that, while it is an amazing gift, that is not what the Christian life is supposed to be centered on. Um, the Christian, real Christianity um, is rising from our knees and entering into the crowds of people who are in desperate need of healing and wholeness. Um, entering into the human situation. Seeing the problems around you. Um, it is the real, real Christianity is drawing strength from God. Spending those times in quiet, drawing strength from God. So that you can give that to other people. It is um, taking your burdens to God. Not so that you can just feel free of everything but so that you can actually free yourself of your burdens and take on the burdens of other people and walk with them. Um, This is what Christianity was always supposed to be about. This is why they set the table, invited all the outcasts of the world to the table. Everyone who did not belong in the temple, everyone who did not belong in God's people, all, all the people whom even pagan religion shunned, those are the people Christians set the table for and invited them to sit with Jesus at the table. Um, True, real Christianity. Um, it means meeting God both in the secret, quiet places and in the moments with, with men and women in the marketplace. This is, this is what Matthew is over and over and over again trying to explain to us. See, the Jewish people were so used to escaping from the world into their temple and moving farther and farther towards God in the temple where Gentiles were not allowed. And as you got farther in, women weren't allowed. Children were never allowed. And, and, and you, you were, it was just a bunch of powerful men standing in the center with God feeling really, really spiritual. And God enters in and destroys that whole thing. He says, no, no, no. Um, this was never meant to be the intention. We are going to set the table and feed everyone equally together. You are not meant to be by yourself filling yourself up. You draw near. And so we go farther into this text. Um, so the man brings this son, his son who is suffering. He falls into fire, falls into water. Um, he's having seizures. And he says, I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. Um, and then Jesus turns and says, you unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus said. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. Jesus rebukes the demon and it came out of the boy and he was healed at that moment. Now, so the, the description for what this boy has uh, in the Greek word, it literally translates to moonstruck. Now, if you read ancient literature and try to find out how this word was used, we know it was, it was used to describe seizures, uncontrollable shaking. Um, 
And it may not be epilepsy. We don't really know. There's several things it could be, but they called it one thing. They called it being moonstruck, and they attributed it to demonic activity. Um, Now, does this mean everyone with epilepsy is possessed by a demon? No. It's not how we use the Bible, folks. Um, However, um, they didn't know what it was. They didn't have the scientific advancements that we have. Um, You know, Hippocrates was just sort of making headway at this point um, into, like, science and and into into medicines. And so they assumed it it incurred some kind of demon possession or whatever. Um, And there were people there. Um, this is how they were thinking. We don't know whether or not there actually was demon possession or not. But Jesus does this thing and he casts this demon out, whatever. He does something and the boy is healed. Um, and it's funny because I, it's people on both sides. If you have, if you have um, a lot of progressive Christians I talk to, they, they don't believe in, in miracles or anything like that. And they don't believe in demons. And they say, well, it's not a demon. It's just epilepsy. And, and of course, they thought it was, it was a demon. Well, you're just trading one miracle for another because Jesus heals the kid. <laughs> so either way, you lose. Um, and so it's possible that Jesus is accommodating. We don't really know what, what this is, and scholars are just everywhere on this thing. And for some reason, they spend a lot of time debating random things. Um, gets a little unnecessary. But either way, this kid is suffering. He's broken. Something in him is broken. He's hurting himself. He's suffering. Um, and, 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 and the disciples were of no help. Um, and oftentimes I wonder if, and maybe you do too, like if you work with, if you work with people and they're at one place and your job in life is to take them to a higher place, like you, you're a teacher or you're like a mom or a dad, um, or you're a pastor or you are whatever you are responsible for, you're like training people in something. You're taking them from a lower place to a higher place in this specific thing. And you get very frustrated sometimes, um, I have literally said to people who have asked me questions, who they've been here for years, and I've looked at them and I said, have you, have you heard a word that I've said ever? Because that question reveals a lot, like maybe you're surfing Facebook every week when I'm doing this and talking to you about what this all means. Um, and like there are frustrations that teachers have with students. Now, um, Scholars are pretty unanimous that Jesus is rebuking his students, not this man, because there's some back and forth later about this and, and the way the Greek is written. Um, he's speaking to his students. And Jesus is frustrated. And here's the thing. Um, Jesus has, tells them in the very next paragraph, maybe two paragraphs down, he reminds them again, look, I'm going to be arrested and taken away from you very soon. I will not be with you very long. I'm going to be killed. Um, because this is what happens when you rise up and speak out against an empire, when you declare another lord, another king, another president, um, whatever. When you declare that there is something else that you are following, um, you're turning on your own empire. Also, uh, when, you, when you speak out against the religious establishment, that what they're doing is wrong and there's a better way. Everyone in power at that time stood to lose the more Jesus message went out. So the more Jesus speaks, the more mad all the people in power become. And... They eventually will arrest him and kill him like they did with all messiahs in the first century. And Jesus is reminding them, I'm not going to be here much longer. And I worry about you. I worry you're not going to be able to keep this going. All the things I'm teaching you. Because you're getting distracted. You're getting off course. And so there seems to be this genuine worry. Like this human feeling and emotion of, of frustration and why do I have to keep telling you over and over and over again? So um, 
The late Eugene Peterson, he died last week, in case you didn't know. He's an, in, he was an incredible pastor for, for decades after, and decades and decades. He, uh, he wrote a lot of books. He wrote a translation of the Bible. I love his translation, the message. Uh, here's how he translates this line from Jesus, and I think it's brilliant. What a generation. No sense of God. No focus to your lives. How many times do I have to go over these things? Um, <coughs> that's an accurate description. He's... He's speaking to them about how, I don't know where your focus is, but it's on the wrong thing. Um, And what I love about this is that this guy takes his son, he needs healing, he takes his son to the disciples, and they are of no help in making things better. For some reason, they cannot make things whole again, and we're going to talk about that in a bit. Um, For whatever reason, they can't do it. And instead of giving up and saying, oh, I... I thought you guys were here to do this specific thing, and this isn't what you do? Okay. Instead of walking away and going elsewhere to the pagan temples and ask for healing, he actually circumvents them, and he goes to Jesus. And I love that. Um, and I, I ponder the message of Matthew in this. Um, because the followers of Jesus could not bring healing, and the man went straight to Jesus. Um, even though the representatives of Jesus had failed him, he was able to maintain his faith that Jesus was somehow still capable of bringing healing. I think this is really important because there are a lot of people who feel, in general, that the church is broken, that it, is, it has, it has uh, um, the professed disciples of Jesus are now, at this point, unequipped to bring the healing that we were put here to, to bring. And a lot of people in my generation especially felt this. About 15 years ago, it spawned this, um, this whole church movement to people asking a lot of questions about why isn't the church addressing the things that Jesus was addressing? Why are we making this all about flying away post-mortem? Why are we making this about things that Jesus was never talking about? And it's sort of as if we've brought this broken thing, this broken stuff of the world to the disciples of Jesus, our pastors and our leaders and our megachurch leaders, And they were incapable of doing anything about it for whatever reason. And there comes a time when you have to realize they're like, oh, I have direct access to Jesus. I can take these things directly to Christ. I can circumvent this whole thing. Like, there are no gatekeepers between you and God, there are not. One of the whole messages of the scriptures is God is present and active and drawing nearer and nearer to you all the time. And it's like if we could only get beyond the human followers of Jesus, if we could only get beyond the facade of church order and the failures of the church, if we could only get at Jesus himself, we would receive the things that we are missing. And there's a lot of people, and I'm really encouraged by this, there's a lot of people who have lost their faith in the church but still believe and have faith that Jesus is the way. That, that Jesus is offering the remedy for all the things that are broken. And I love that. And if that is you, if you have been hurt by the church, I have been hurt by the church as well in my youth. I, I had a, I had a, um, the only spiritual mentor I, had, I ever had ended up committing crimes and becoming an atheist. Like I have been failed to. Um, you're in good company. And, and the whole point of this is to remind us that like, yes, the disciples of Jesus, even the ones who know him the best and who have walked with him, will fail you. They will. If you are in a church long enough, they will fail you. They were never meant to hold what you are asking them to hold, which is your faith in their hands. They were meant to be a shepherd and walk with you towards 
Jesus. This is precisely why the celebrity Christian thing is, is so dangerous, incredibly dangerous. The celebrity pastor thing with the images and massive crowds and, and book sales and, and, and conference tours. It's, it is dangerous, and we all have to admit that it is dangerous. Because like, I've, I've been behind the curtain. I know, I know pastors who struggle with agnosticism. I know, I know famous worship leaders who, who try so hard to cover the problems in their lives of addiction, um, of loneliness, because you and I are putting things on them that they were never meant to bear. There is a life of Christianity that is supposed to center around pointing past ourselves to Jesus. Past ourselves. Um, we should all be just be simply, you know, a faithful follower of Jesus points to the king, never himself, because the human being will fail all the time. We have a king. We are citizens of that kingdom. We don't talk ourselves up instead of the king. We point straight to the king every time. And when people come to us, we push them this way. We say, no, Jesus, Ephesians 4, Jesus is worshipped in the church. Not people. Okay? Now, we go to the next part. Um, oh, yes, I put this in here, Eugene Peterson. I've been reading a lot of his, of course, because after, somehow after people pass away, their words somehow take on a lot of meaning. I don't know if you've ever experienced this. One of my... One of my um, one of my favorite bands, the lead singer, died a few years ago, and, and suddenly I'm hearing things in his music that I never heard, and like, this is how it is. So like, there's this quote from Eugene Peterson in his book. By the way, you should read this, the long, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. It's a great book. Oh, here we go. Um, there, is a great, there is a great market for religious experience in our world. There is little enthusiasm for the patient acquisition of virtue, little inclination to sign up for a long apprenticeship in what earlier generations of Christians called holiness. There is this this desire for this thing to grow huge really fast in your life. But what we actually require is a very long discipleship in one direction, a commitment to one single thing. And this is where the next passage comes in. Um, The disciples came to Jesus in private and asked, why couldn't we drive it out? And he replied, because you have so little faith. Truly, I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. So, okay, I want to I cover um, the mountain thing first. Um, moving mountains from here to there. So in the first century, um, this was something the Jewish people understood, this saying. It, you, can, you can move mountains. So um, here's how this went. Students of the Torah would be studying it. Um, and they would see something they have a really hard time with, and maybe you've experienced this, reading the Bible, and you're like, I don't know what to do with this. And so they would go to a great teacher, a rabbi, they would go to the teacher, and they would say, there is a mountain in my way. I'm supposed to go this way, but there is a mountain rooted in front of me, in my path, and I cannot go in this direction until I climb this mountain, but I cannot climb this mountain. It, 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 it's too difficult. Something too hard to handle. Um, and they would bring it to the rabbi, and the rabbi would teach them, oh, see, so here's some pieces that you're missing to fully understand this thing. If you take this, and you read it this way, and you combine it with this, and you, you see, and, you, and, and the rabbi sort of like, uh, they would say, oh, thank you, you've removed that mountain for me. Like, you, you've made the path straight and easy for me. You've made my path straight. All right? Um, this was a rabbinical way of talking, that like, people would bring problems to you, mountains that they could not scale, 
and that you would be the healing presence in their life. And that you would come and you would somehow be equipped to move this mountain for them. And so Jesus says, if you have faith, even the smallest faith, small like a mustard seed, you would, you would be able, if, if it was the, even the smallest faith, you would be able to remove the mountains from people's lives. And that's what this man, that's sort of what Jesus is saying this man had. Like, there was this thing, and, and, and there was no way he could get past it, and Jesus was able to bring healing and make things whole again. Now, um, it's interesting because he says, uh, he says, first off, he says, you have little faith, so they have a little faith, and then Jesus says, but if you have a little faith, you could do this. You could remove people's troubles, remove mountains. Um, and it sort of seems like a, a little bit of a contradiction, but what he's trying to say is, um, you have a little faith, yes, but that faith is pointing in the wrong direction, okay? Um, that faith is pointing, so the word faith, oh, let's look at this first, okay? The word faith is this word pistis, um, and it's, it's a Greek word that simply, um, our awareness of this word has grown a lot in the last 50, 60 years um, through modern scholarship, um, studies of Dead sea, Dead sea Scrolls and codices that we found. Um, and we've come to see like these, these words in all new light and how they were used. The word faith was like this kingdom word. Um, and, it, and it really refers to allegiance. We tend to, for some reason when I was growing up, I was taught that faith was believing in things without any evidence. It's not faith. That's not what that is at all. That's not that's not how the early first century Christians would have talked about it. Um, and it's not, faith is not trying really hard to believe something. That's not what it is. Um, faith is, a, is, there's a king, you're a citizen, again, and you have allegiance to this king and no other king. That is faith. It is what Eugene Peterson called a long obedience in the same direction. This is my king. I follow my king despite what any other king in the world is telling me and what they're enticing me with or what they're promising me, I follow Jesus. Important things to remember in weeks like this coming up, election weeks. We have a king. It is none of them. They are not our hope. Jesus is our hope. And there's plenty of debate about how you can engage in all this. Um, We don't have time this morning. Um, So, Jesus says, all you need is a little bit of faith, a little bit of allegiance, a little bit of faith, commitment to one thing. Like a floor, a moral floor, a spiritual, moral, ethical floor. Like this is the thing that I'm, that I'm, I'm rooting my life in. Allegiance to Jesus as king. But if that faith, all you have is a little faith. You know, you don't have to be a, a, a Bible scholar. You don't have to know everything about everything. You just have to trust your king. But if you have even a little bit of trust in the wrong direction, towards the wrong thing. It is useless. Even if you have a great amount of trust in the wrong thing. N.T. Wright describes it like this. Even if you had a window, the biggest window, and it faced the night sky, and you wanted to see the moon, it doesn't, know, doesn't matter how big your window is if it's facing in the wrong direction. However, if you have a small crack in the wall, but it's facing in just the right direction, that's all you need if you're trying to see the moon. All you need is a little bit face in the right direction. You don't, Christian, you don't need to be a know-it-all Bible scholar who knows every doctrine and has read every book in the world. You need to trust King Jesus, that the path of Jesus is the right path, that it can bring healing, that it can make the world whole again, that he is moving things in the direction 
but he's taking it. And trust his ways, even though oftentimes they seem difficult, scary, and, and sometimes they don't make sense. Turning the other cheek when somebody is punching you makes no sense unless Jesus is trying to do something different than simply kill our enemies. Okay? Faith in the right direction. Small faith in the right direction. He says, that's what you were lacking. They had faith in something. We don't, it, doesn't, it, doesn't, it doesn't expound upon this. They had allegiance to something that was apparently not Jesus as king. Peter had a, allegiance to Jesus as king. He understood this. These were the nine disciples who weren't with them. Okay? Now, um, where am I so far off my notes? Okay. Oh, so we have the mountain thing. Jesus says... Uh, you want to move people's mountains? You, you want to be able to bring healing to people's lives? You don't need a lot. You need to trust Jesus as king. You want to be a great teacher? Here's the message. Jesus is king. That's the message. It's not complicated. Great teachers bring healing to a lot of people. Um, great, great teachers are present and they have the words to say. The words people desperately need to hear in this world. The words Christians need to hear is that Jesus is king. That's what Jesus is getting out here. So we come to this next section here, and it seems like, it seems like it's not connected. And this is where the debate comes in about why are we saving these passages and not other passages? Why is there this random story about taxes? I think it, I think it, it absolutely connects. Um, let's look at it. Um, so straight from here, uh, it says, after Jesus and his disciples arrived in Capernaum, so they go back to their hometown again, over and over and over. The, the collectors of the two, te, uh, the two drachma temple tax came to Peter and asked, doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? Yes, he does, he replied. Okay, now, um, first off, the temple tax. Uh, it comes from, uh, well, first off, the, the temple was very expensive to run, okay? Very, very expensive. Twice a day, there are these massive sacrifices that would happen um, with an unblemished one-year-old lamb and I imagine the, the unblemished lamb market was through the roof in those days. And there was so much to spend money on. There was, um, oh man, there was uh, um, incense and, and wine and flour and oil. It sounds like a, like a party. And there were like robes. It's a toga party. There were robes that were very expensive that, that, that the workers in the temple had to wear. And then there's this priestly garment that was incredibly expensive that... Um, had to be replaced every few years because it would, it would wear out and there's these precious stones all over it, all kinds of things. Um, it was a very expensive thing, thing to do. And so in, uh, in Exodus chapter 30, we see what's called the sanctuary shekel, all right? Sounds like if you're making it a fun thing. It's the sanctuary shekel. Um, it's a tax on God's people to pay for the sanctuary. Um, and basically it was... It was um, it was, okay, I'm going to sort of bring this into, from Hebrew to Greek and then English here. Um, so it was, it was a half shekel, which is in the Greek is two drachma in the first century. And then um, today, it would be about, it's about two days wages for a working man. So today it's probably about 500 bucks, five or 600 bucks, depending on days wages, a year. 500 bucks a year. Now, technically it was obligatory. You didn't have to pay it, but we have well-documented cases of, the Levites, the temple priests, going to people's houses and taking their stuff and selling it so that they could pay the temple tax. All right. Um, at some point, the, the people in the temple became a little bit of like mobby, right? Um, and 
It was obligatory. You didn't have to pay it, but you kind of had to pay it, right? Wink, wink. And um, there was a lot of debate about, about who had to pay it. Um, there's different factions. Like most people paid it, the Pharisees and the Essenes. On the opposite ends, the Pharisees are like, the, are like super, con, uh, the, the, the super liberal and then the Essenes are the super conservatives. Um, they all came to an agreement. They're like, we're going to pay it once in our lifetime, right? So there are all kinds of debate about this temple tax. It was a huge deal, but everyone agreed it had to be paid. So this guy comes up to Peter and he says, hey, did your rabbi pay the temple tax? He was probably a tax collector. Every year in the, uh, in the month of Adar, which is March, um, in our year, it's March. So this is one of the ways we know like what time of year it is and stuff. So it's March and this guy comes up to Peter. He's a tax collector and he says, hey, did your rabbi pay the temple tax? And Peter goes, yeah, he pays the temple tax. Peter doesn't know. You can tell. You can read it. And he has no idea whether or not Jesus pays the temple tax. Um, And it's almost like he has a moment of like, Am I supposed to pay the temple tax or not? I should ask Jesus what's a sin and what's not a sin because I'm not sure whether or not I'm supposed to pay the temple tax. And it's the kind of thing where like you have these questions all the time. Is this a sin or is this not a sin? And that's your like, that's your question. Not what is the heart of God of love in this matter? It's like, is this a sin or not? I don't know. And like, that's what, that's what Peter's going through, right? Like I get questions all the time about, is this a sin? Is this a sin? And it's everything from like, from like, can me and my girlfriend check up to like, is it a sin for Christians to vote or serve in the military? Like everything. Um, and so there's this, we, we tend to want to know whether or not something is a sin or not, rather than what is the heart of Christ and do I share it? Okay? Um, which is a much harder journey to figure out. It takes a lot of introspection in yourself. Now, um, Peter walks into the house and like a good prophet, Jesus knows what's just happened. When Peter came into the house, Jesus was the first to speak. What do you think, Simon? And he's like, huh? What? Um, he said, from whom do the kings of the earth collect duty and taxes? From their own children or from others? And so Jesus launches into a question about taxes. And, he, and he's like, riddle me this. And he's like, oh, fun, a riddle. Here we go. Okay. Um, from, from who... From who do the kings of the earth collect duty and taxes? Now, in the first century um, and all, all the centuries around it, the kings decided on what the tax would be. They were emperors and they would just decide, I want everyone to give this much tax every year. However, their children did not have to pay the tax, of course. And um, in fact, a lot of the tax went to provide for their family and their children's family's whole lifestyle of opulence that they lived in. So the, the kids didn't have to pay the tax. And so Jesus asked Peter, hey, Peter, this temple tax thing. Um, who pays taxes? Do the people or do the children of the king pay the tax? And he goes, um, the people pay the tax, not the children of the king. Peter answers here. He says, um, he says they take the tax from others, Peter answered. Well, then the children are exempt, Jesus said to him. But so we may find not cause to offense. Go to the lake and throw out your line. I'm going to pause here for a second because it gets weird and we're going to get to that. Um, now, Jesus says, basically... Remember how earlier you said I was king. We were in Philippi, Caesarea Philippi, and you said, I am the Messiah, the anointed one, the king. Um, and that's my house. It's the temple of God. So that's, that's my house. And um, do you think the king's children, you are my child, do you think the king's children have to pay the tax? He said, no. And Jesus says, so me and you, I just want you to know we are exempt. 
We have no obligation to this earthly kingdom that they have set up here that is in violation of so many things that God is against. By the way, every earthly kingdom exists. This is a huge statement. You may get mad at me. Every earthly kingdom that exists in this world only exists against the kingdom of God. They are all idolatrous. Every one of them who are not Israel under God's king, the Bible calls Babylon. Every one of them. Yes, America, China, Russia, all of it. They are all Babylon. And then there is Israel, God's people under King Jesus, as Paul describes in Romans. Now, think about that for a while. That'll get difficult. Now, especially during election week. Um, Now, um, he says, so you and I are exempt. However, I want you to pay the tax so that we can keep the peace. You're going to pay the tax for me. You're going to pay it for you. And here's what he says. You're going to go down to the lake and you're going to catch a fish and you're going to take the coin out of its mouth for drachma. That's a lot more actually than the temple tax than they would have to pay. And I want you to pay. Not 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 just yours, but mine as well. So, if, okay, I'm going to pause here for a second and cover the fish thing, because I know a lot of you are like, this is super weird. It is weird. Um, However, um, there are very few scholars who think, like very, very few, conservative, liberal, any of them, who think that this is actually what Jesus was telling Peter to literally do. Peter was a fisherman, okay? Jesus is being rabbinical again. Peter was a fisherman, and he's telling him, in order to keep the peace, why don't you just go catch some fish? And, and there's plenty of rabbinical texts that talk about pulling, pulling coins out of wooden chairs and tables and pulling coins out of this and that. It's, it's, it's saying, like, you have a way of making money and making a living. And when you do, I want you to pay your taxes. Because it has nothing to do with us. And later on, we're actually going to get into a passage where Jesus talks more about paying taxes. In Romans 13, it talks about paying taxes. Um, there is this way that Jesus wanted them to live that was like, um, we're not just here to be disruptive for no reason. Was the temple tax unjust? Yes. Did Jesus have to pay it? No. Um, could he have easily just said, I am not going to pay this on principle and, all, and, and cause, he had a lot, big following. He could have easily caused this uprising and all the people are going to stop paying the tax. And he didn't do it. Okay. So from the top of this passage to the very bottom, the whole way through, there is this there is this common theme of everyday life. We have suffering, death, and taxes. Like, come on, death and taxes. Um, Jesus is on top of the mountain with his disciples. And things are incredible. And they're spiritual, and they're mystical, and they're glorious. And he comes walking down the mountain. Instantly, he knows we can't stay here. He walks down the mountain, instantly is confronted with his own disciples are failing, going the wrong direction, worshiping, keeping their allegiance to the wrong thing. Um, they're not being able to serve people the correct way. Um, this is a tarnish on his own reputation. It doesn't look good. People are coming to him with things that he need, that need healing, and he's healing them. And, and, then, and then he's pulling his disciples aside and confronting him in all the ways that they're doing things wrong. And then he's frustrated. And at the same time, he talks to Peter. Peter didn't know why you had to pay the tax or not. And Jesus is like, here's how it is. And he's teaching Peter. And they're not getting it. But what we're seeing here is Jesus being a really, really good follower of God. 
he has, there's this abiding presence of peacefulness to where Jesus doesn't seem to care that his image is being tarnished by people. He doesn't care. He doesn't care when his disciples, when his disciples fail, he's not, he's not worried about how it looks on him. He's worried about, I worry about when I go that you're not going to be able to do this and you need this. He's worried about their own health, their own faith. He's not concerned that they're going to do things wrong and make him look bad at all. He's, um, he's concerned about their health and their healing. He's not concerned about holding on to his money that he makes. He's not concerned about um, holding on to the power that he has. He's, he's generous. He's giving away. He's so generous with his time, with his power, with his money, with his emotions, with his presence. He's spending time with people constantly pouring himself out for them in the everyday frustrations of life. This is what Jesus is doing. He's not avoiding people. He's not holding tightly to anything. He's letting it all go. He's, um, he's not concerned with his image. How many of you have thought about somebody and said, you are an embarrassment to this family? Like, you may not have said it out loud. Maybe you've said it out loud. And, and, but you're an embarrassment. Like, I'm embarrassed to know you, to be around you. That is never a thought Jesus would have. Because those thoughts are about you and your image. Jesus is unconcerned with that. What he cares about when people fall into things that others would be embarrassed by, what he cares about is them, their journey, them being made whole. He's not concerned with associating with people. How, can you imagine, thought experiment, imagine if the disciples were on Twitter, how quickly they would say something problematic, right? And what's Jesus going to do? Is he going to excommunicate them? Look, we can't be in the same conference anymore, all right? Look, um, no, he doesn't care. He says, those are my brothers. Those are my sisters. Bring them closer. I'm never going to stop associating with them. I'm never going to stop drawing near to them. He's different. He's a good shepherd. He's the presence of God in their midst, literally. And he's calling us to be that too. Imagine Matthew writing to his church these things, knowing all the things that are coming. Eventually, the the temple falls and the emperor takes over the temple tax, and he starts demanding the temple tax go directly to him. What do we do? Do we revolt? Do we kill them? What do we do when people turn on us? What do we do with all these people who are getting this all wrong? Do we excommunicate them? What do we do? No, 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 no. You are, you are the abiding presence of Jesus in their life. The reason these stories come after the glory on the mountain is very simple. Christians should be the faithful and steady presence of Jesus, not looking out for ourselves, but revealing the way of peace in the midst of a world that is constantly um, clawing for power, for money, for more, more, more. And Jesus is like, you can give that all away. All I care about is, is the love and the health and the joy of the people around me. That's what he is living for. That is the message in all this. From the top of the mountain, He leaves it all behind to come enter into our lives. Um, There are people in your life who need you, nothing more from you. You don't need to know everything. You don't need to know how to fix their problems, but there are mountains that they need to scale, and all you need is a little bit of faith and allegiance in Christ that Jesus has a desire to bring wholeness to them and that you are just going to be the presence of the resurrected Jesus in their life. And that right now might be all they need. And so now why don't we take communion and ponder all of this? It's a lot. It's a huge passage. Our communion service, why don't you take the elements and spread around the room? Um, 
And we'll spend some time in, uh, in prayer this morning. There's two elements in communion. If you're not familiar with communion, it's something that we do every single week. If you grew up in another tradition, they may have called it the Eucharist or the good gift. Um, it's, uh, it's bread and it's wine. It's, it's simply we take a piece and rip it off and dip it in the wine and eat it. It's a reminder of, of, of the center of all of this. In the end, no matter what you bring to the table, no matter how holy your life is or how messed up your life is, the body of Christ was broken for you and the blood of Christ was poured out for you. And the presence of Jesus is abiding with you and calling you to just put simple faith in the way of Jesus, in him. So let's spend some time in prayer. Let's take communion, shall we? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this place and these people. Thank you for what little faith you have granted us. I pray that that faith would grow and that our allegiance to Jesus above all others would be something that that we take seriously. Let us have no other gods before you. Let us have no other hopes but you. Let us exercise your way here. Show love to the loveless, carving seats out at the table for all who are hungry. Thank you, Father. In your name, amen. Talk to Jesus. Spend some time in prayer.